Architecture. Welcome everyone to the Ofsted podcast. This time we're talking about the best start in life. Just to start with a few introductions. First introduction is the new co-host on the podcast, Mark Leach, who is Acting Director of Strategy and Engagement. Hello, I'm stepping into uh, Chris Jones's shoes and, and part of that uh, is to join the podcast, which is very exciting. And we have two special guests from outside Ofsted. We have Molly Devlin, who is head teacher at Arc Start in West London. Hi, thank you for having me today. I'm really excited to join you. And we have Helen Donahue, who is Chief Executive of PACI, which stands for the Professional Association for Childcare and Early Years. Hi, everyone. Like Molly, I'm really delighted to be doing this. Last but not least, we have our very own Lee Aston, who is Deputy Director for Schools and Early Education. I mean, it's a great topic for today because the best start in life is one of our strategic priorities. Lee and I have had lots of lovely chats about it. Lee, do you want to say a quick hello? Hello, everyone. Good, good to be here. Good to have a conversation with them, um, with Helen and Molly as well. Should we start with like a really sort of easy question in a way, which is why, why do we think it's so important for children to have a high quality early education? Molly, do you want to start? Because you nodded enthusiastically. I'm absolutely enthusiastic about this. I think there's no lack of evidence and research that early education is one of the most important things for children to have so that they have the opportunity to thrive. But more than that, it's not just about education, right? It's about being able to fully participate in our democratic society. And it starts with our youngest children. Actually, what we know is that it starts in the womb Mm -hmm. and that early years is not the only factor in ensuring that children have the best start in life. But it is the factor that Helen and I have clearly chosen to be incredibly passionate about and dedicate our lives to. Yeah, I mean, I fully endorse what Molly said. It's a a universal uh, understanding that um, the earlier we can we can start with um, the next generation, the better. And as Molly said, it's not just about uh, linguistics or numeracy or those important things we need, but it's about the person that 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 child and eventually that young person will become. Um, and allowing them to make the, get the best out of their life and, and the best contribution to their communities. It's also about safety. Sometimes we forget, you know, I think in an ideal scenario, every child would trot along to their kind of childcare, early education setting of choice and have a, a brilliant, fulfilled um, experience. But sometimes it's it's around kind of let's see the children, let's let's be aware of the children in our communities and make sure we're keeping them safe as well. I think... Really early on, we've kind of touched on something that has always interested me. When I was at nursery way back in the 1970s, we called it play school. Mm. And that was a really interesting formulation of of words, right? Because it cuts to a debate that I think runs through early years and still runs through early years. And, and the balance between um, children uh, being taught, ch- children being educated and children playing and exploring their surroundings and sort of learning as they they go. And I just wanted to touch on that because I think it's it's interesting, obviously, for people who work in the sector. I think it's also something that parents think about when they're when they're looking at nurseries for their kids. You know, what 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 sort of environments is it going to be? How much are they going to learn and develop? And what sort of play experience are they going to have? I, I wonder whether Helen and Molly, you wanted to talk a bit about a bit about that. I think there's quite a controversial debate around what is it early. explicit <laughs> facilitated teaching and, and what is play. And I think really they're so intertwined that you can't pull them apart in in any thoughtful way because what we know is that to use resources well 
thoughtfully and with purpose that actually the adult takes the role of the facilitator there. And there are some resources where you need to do more of that facilitation at the forefront. And there are some resources where you may do that facilitation in the middle or when you can see that they're you know, coming up to a problem. A great example of that is watercolour paints. So I was in one of our nurseries last week and actually it's really frustrating to use a watercolour paint set if you don't know the rules of how to use watercolours. Yep. If you don't know that you need a wet paintbrush and actually you probably need to make 10, 15 circles so that the paint is opaque enough to then be able to see it on your blank sheet of paper, that is a really unfulfilling resource. However, a little bit of teaching facilitating at the beginning on how to use that resource successfully it gives children more independence as they go through that play and practice of using those paints. And it's then that you might choose to step away and observe and think. And if they have a problem with that, you might jump in or you might not because you might be interfering. And it's all about having really, really attuned practitioners who know their unique children and can make thoughtful choices about now, not now, if it is now, then what are you going to do? How are you going to support them? Is it enough to just say, yeah, it is tricky. How could we solve this problem? Do you have any ideas? That's really interesting. Thank you. Helen, do you have? Yeah. Uh... Well, I think there's two things here. First of all, we devalue play. Let's remember play is a wonderful thing in its own right. And we become so prescriptive around what early education should be. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that we have a world-class EYFS curriculum. Um, I was had a catch up with some colleagues in Singapore earlier today who want to learn from us and they basically plagiarised our curriculum. So, you know, it's, we, it's important to remember that we are world leaders in that. But we devalue play and I think um, as part of that, we just, we, we take on a too narrow definition of education because education is, is just everyday life, isn't it? You know, it's from the spectrum of getting up in the morning to um, doing an open university course. So I, I was at my eldest daughter's school graduation yesterday, 16, just finished her GCSEs, you know, at the other end of the spectrum. And every brilliant teacher that stood up from the from the person in charge of welfare through to the head teacher talked about lifelong learning. And this isn't where your education stops. This is, you know, and this exactly the same applies to, to the youngest children. And some of the children that will learn most are those that don't have that that privileged life outside the setting and, and that, you know, they'll learn to live, communicate, apply themselves um, and give, give themselves almost unconsciously the ability to take on the more elements of pedagogy further down the line. And it doesn't stop, right? Exactly. Because exactly. We, we give our practitioners that opportunity to play. You know, as part of our PD, you're also playing with different ideas about how to interact with children, how to facilitate learning. We're constantly playing with ideas about how to change curriculum to see what works well. And that is play-based learning. It might have slightly more structure around it, but we all have as adults the freedom to play and try things out for the first time. And, you know, we should be giving that opportunity and that freedom to our children. It's not just about ideas either. I mean, I'm genuinely quite addicted to playing with my three-year-old's train set. It's um, it's a really good piece of kit. What we were saying earlier is a, a long-running um, debate, isn't it, in terms, of, in terms of teaching, play, what should early education look like? And actually, you know, I wrote a report a long time ago now in terms of Ofsted history of, of called Teaching and Play a Balancing Act to try and ensure that we did have the debate and we did try and get somewhere along that journey. And I think interesting what you've just said there Shreena I think 
often we have a debate about, well, what do we mean by teaching? And teaching can be a bit of a dirty word sometimes in in some kind of settings because it brings connotations of desks and pencils and paper. And, you know, that can be teaching, but that isn't the only definition of, of teaching. And I think sometimes it's easier to think about not, you know, teachers not being the only people that can teach because I think already Molly and Helen have used lots of other words, practitioners, um, we could use educators, we could say parents, you know, it's anybody that, that allows us or helps us to learn on our on our journey, whether we're children or adults. And I would say, obviously, parents are a child's first educator or educators, and they teach every day. They just don't realise they're doing it or they haven't got a particular qualification. None of us do do in terms of parenting or a teaching qualification, but Essentially, I just boil it down to kind of inter interactions. I know that's a very simplistic view, but it's whether, you know, is it an informal interaction? Is it a more formal um, interaction? Does it involve resources or not? Is it is it kind of incidental or is it is it planned? And ultimately, we always end up at the point of saying it's it's what's needed in terms of, you know, what, what a child is a, interested in, what it is that they need to learn next, and obviously then finding the best way of that particular child or group of children um, learning whatever it is that we have have in mind for them. So I think kind of essentially where, where we all are with the debate, I don't think we ever have an argument about education is important or not. I think that is something that we're all kind of united on. We're not short of any research evidence to prove that point. But the interesting debate is what others see the purpose of early education being. I think that's where your question was going, Srina, around, you know, so what what is it that parents want? And actually it will be different depending on individual parents' circumstances, won't it? And I think the more we can do to unpick the importance of what happens in early education establishments, whether that's preschool, whether that's nursery or reception classes in school with parents, you know, it's not there's not something kind of hidden that they don't understand. It is it is what they're doing at home. It's just that in settings, we have more resources. We have people people who have kind of trained in terms of the right kinds of interaction. But that doesn't mean that what parents are doing at home is is wrong or the, you know, or the wrong thing. What I can say about the parents that we have in setting and actually every single parent that I've engaged with is that they want the best for their children. And all parents that I have ever met want their child to succeed. And if for them that looks like more care than education that's because they believe that that's what's right for their child and I think that's just such a fantastic starting point that you can work on parent engagement on parent support and you know work alongside each unique family because different families are coming into education at such different points if you've had your own personal experiences with education that have been negative or very compliance based and actually you find speaking to an educational professional to be quite intimidating, then we owe it to those families to give their children just as much access to high quality education as families who are coming and going, I know exactly what the developmental milestones are, I know what early learning goal is, I want my child to succeed and be really academic, right? So it's about having a really open door policy, I think and being willing to meet people in conversations, making it really non-judgmental and, and asking, you know, what do you want for your child? What are your aspirations? How can we help you with that in a way that empowers parents to feel like the best parent that they can be and that they can teach their child and that they can play an active part in that rather than 
unnecessarily engaging them in a care versus education debate, they're not thinking about that. They're thinking about their child and what they want for them. Can I challenge you on that a bit though, Molly? I'm going go to be, ahead, Alan. I'm going to be devil's Yeah, good. Go ahead. <laughs> They're the parents that are through your door. Uh, and do you know what? You know, You're right. There's yeah. subconscious bias there because those are the parents that I've engaged with and they've chosen to send their child to a nursery. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there, there is always going to be that bias. And that is why I can only speak from my experience. Yeah, but uh, not just be, that. They sort out your really good provision, your really, you know, top of the range um, provision. And that uh, we have no sense. I, I used to be a parent governor at North Islington Nursery School um, and they did some fantastic work. We did some fantastic work around outreach and going out to communities that simply were not going anywhere near um, because that it was perceived as a middle, white middle class, baby yoga, et cetera, et cetera. And we did some brilliant work outreaching. There was a lots. There was a kind of um, a time where the, we had lots of Somali refugees, and did some brilliant work with that community. But didn't reach everybody by any means. But it was a really proactive piece of work. And I just think we don't have a sense of those people that aren't, you know, the ones that that, that see the value and want to engage in the value, whether it's care, whether it's pedagogy. That's a really important point, isn't it? I mean. It... I suppose it boils down child is not a level playing field and, and different parents will have different approaches and continue to emphasize and I think and I think you know you you see the government trying to do it emphasize the importance of getting children into into early education but you're you're right Helen how do we how do we reach out to people and, and demonstrate that it's for them and there are going to be different circumstances and of course you know, cost and other things come into it and, and then of course there's there's the decision to be made about do they use a child mind or do they go for a, a nursery? And that's a, a, a different approach. And I don't know whether it's worth exploring that a little more and, and you know, what sort of expectations we put in, in on, on child minders and on nurseries and how they differ. I mean, obviously Lee can talk from an Ofsted point of view, but but more generally, um, Helen and Molly, what, what do you think about that? I think in terms of the expectations, that we have for our nurseries. It's about really working with our families to help them understand what we are, what we do, how we can support their child, how we can support them as a family, while having, I think, realistic expectations about what different ratios mean, what different care looks like for different age groups, and the, the different things that we can reasonably expect of our practitioners and our workforce knowing that they have a huge amount of responsibility and they're not necessarily being paid in line with teaching staff in schools. So really protecting our staff while prioritising the best things for our children. So, you know, when we're thinking about workload, I know that many, many nurseries and many parents really enjoy constant, regular uh, photo observations of their children. But what we know is that that's really high workload. And actually often that takes away from the lived experience of interactions in that room. So by setting those expectations really clearly from the forefront about what we've prioritised to make sure our children have the best experience, parents know what they're going to get coming through the door, that they, you know, they can buy into a vision, while also understanding that actually they may not have this constant interaction, but that's for the best of their child. In some ways, the more we try and make this tangible, the more we lose the value. Because I remember, again, this is a personal experience, but I remember when we chose the childminder for 
my two daughters when they were little. Um, I mean, she she had a good Ofsted rating, but that didn't really, you know, as long as she was registered and um, and good, it was fine. What she offered more was the chemistry when we went through that door, and the and the clear love she was able to give um, to the children she um, took care of. Didn't have the biggest house. Had a, a two bedroom flat above a shop in um, where you know where we lived, but we instantly knew. And the, my daughter's absolutely adored her. Um, and she sort of became part of the family. And I think that's the that's the wider piece that we do in early years, is that part of the family support, but not just the children. Childminders do offer, you know, they offer the education and the Ofsted rating means really is of value to them and they really value it. But very often they do offer that kind of family support as well. Look, if mum has financial difficulties, looking for work, mental health, I mean, this really came to light during the pandemic. And that going the extra mile out of out of standard hours, overnight stays, respite care, mm. particular help for children with development delay post pandemic, which you know we know is 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 a huge issue. It's hard to it's hard to really kind of pin down the, the enormous value of colleagues in the sector. I was going to ask something which is um, off on a slightly different uh, track, which is partly inspired by my six year old who was very bitter and his free flow periods were reduced on year one, which is basically about the transition between early education and year one education, education, if you like. And what you think best practices around that, what you've seen works well. It's up to schools to decide how they would like to deliver that national curriculum, right? And what we know around pedagogy is that you can meet the same endpoints, but you can choose the how of how, you know, how we support children to get there. And there are still many, many opportunities within that year one national curriculum to have more structured opportunities to play and investigate. MAPS is a fantastic example. You know, when we're thinking about aerial maps, you can go on a treasure hunt and create your own maps that replicate your school grounds. And you're able to do that in a really playful and joyful way while still meeting those aerial map national curriculum statements. Another one is investigating with materials. I think, you know, it's, it's very likely that Helen's done the same as me. Both Helen and I can remember very clearly sitting around that water tray and going, oh yeah, you're right. It's cardboard, so it has absorbed all the water and then sunk. Perhaps that's not the best material to make your, you know, your boat out of. Maybe we should try something different. And you're doing those same curriculum statements with a little bit more depth in them. In the national curriculum in year one, there's every opportunity to build in those interactions, to find those playful moments, to support children with that transition where they don't have that real kind of unreasonable, unjust feeling that those free flow opportunities have been taken away from them. That's not to say that play isn't a real skill. And I don't think that we can underestimate the difficulty of doing play well. All of the practitioners that run play-based settings, be that nurseries, reception classes in year one, you know, and in some schools where they choose to have more playful learning across key stage two, that takes a huge amount of skill and it is not something that a school can choose to undertake without a, a huge amount of professional development that goes alongside it to make sure that we're doing it in a really thoughtful way. But I think, you know, schools really can feel empowered to make those choices as long as it's backed in the curriculum, it's considered around child development and they're making sure they're putting all of those steps in the way that we do in nurseries to make sure that our play is working through thoughtful, thought, uh, formative assessment. 
I mean, all transitions tricky, isn't it? Whatever age age we're we're talking about, but particularly so because there there is, and we we've kind of acknowledged this over time. There is a disconnect between kind of the earlier foundation stage framework and then what the national cur curriculum says in year one. And strangely, they were never written at the same time, and they're never updated at the same time. So one is always kind of ahead or behind the other in terms of you know the the expectations. So there is. There is some overlap and repetition, particularly in particularly in year one. Our position is obviously, um, as I alluded to earlier, that as long as you are choosing the right things for children to learn, then actually it is the decision of the individual teacher or team in terms of how best, you know, what pedagogical strategy or approach to use to ensure that children learn that in the best possible way so that they, you know, they remember it and that they enjoy enjoy their experience. Of course, we know there are some kind of best bets, aren't they? So depending on what it is you want children to learn, we all know um, that there are better ways of doing some things than, than others. But actually, there are still choices. And ultimately, as an inspector, I'll be interested in the choices that the different schools and teachers and leaders have made and having a conversation around why they've decided to do it that way versus another. That doesn't mean I'm coming with a, a notion in the back of my head of how it should be done and that's what I'm holding you against. And I think that's often what people think we do do. Okay, I'm coming in knowing that you know X has to be taught in a particular way when actually it is about a conversation. However, you know, I would be kind of remiss of me not to say, you know, there are some things that you, you do have to teach and you have to teach in, in some form of a, of a, a direct way. So, um, you know, I'm talking about reading particularly at this point in time you you will not learn to read through a play-based approach you can potentially practice your reading through a play-based approach but in terms of actually learning you know the the letters and the sound correspondences that does have to be taught in in some way and again it's coming back to um a comment i made earlier around you know the the role of parents because i think none of us would expect children to kind of just pick up through play you know their colors or their numbers or or shapes, but we actually teach that by kind of pointing things out on on a walk through the park or where when we're in the car and we say, oh look, the signs, you know, the circle, the signs a circle, or it's a triangle. That that's teaching. That's direct teaching because we are saying, have you noticed that? That is a insert the insert the right vocabulary. So I think it comes back to the debate about teaching versus play. And depending on where you are in the school kind of hierarchy or or certainly as we progress up through school, what, what balance you have between the two. But it is a tension and it's one that we're hoping to get underneath a little bit more as an organisation over the autumn term, particularly that, that transition from reception into into year one. Just want to come back a bit to something that, that Helen touched on uh, around the, the work of the sector during the pandemic, which was obviously uh, hugely challenging time and and uh, and some great work was done and at the time we did some uh some sort of background work we weren't out inspecting but we were doing some some research work on what was going on uh in in, in the sector and certainly looking at early years one of the big things that we were picking up on was um the impact on on socialization and the fact that obviously children were were cooped up at home um, and they weren't interacting with people, um, any people really, other outside of their immediate family uh, in, in the way that they might otherwise do. Obviously, we're a little bit down the road now and and I guess there are different uh, new cohorts of children coming through who who aren't as, uh, who weren't who weren't around, um, so, so weren't affected in, in quite the same way. 
so I, I wonder if you talk a bit about where we are now in terms of that kind of COVID legacy, but also what you think the sector learnt from 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 that time. The whole pandemic for our members, about fifteen thousand members, majority of which are childminders, but pr- practitioners across the sector, um, it was a dreadful time, not only personally for them, but for the children that they they care about so much. It was a period of firefighting and survival. Um, and I think we've, we've not even begun to understand the post-traumatic reaction to that. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. The other thing, I mean, this is about the practitioners rather than the children, but that's it really underlined the sense that they feel undervalued and under-acknowledged. So while we were clapping on doorsteps for, for you know, health practitioners, et cetera, et cetera, they felt that they were always last to be considered, whether it's protection or financial support, et cetera, et cetera. That will have an effect on the on the service they provide because they're exhausted. I'm sure you'll get to talk about it more directly, Bonnie, you know, um, scared, still getting on the bus every day to go to work, not able to wear protection in the, in the workplace because obviously working with young children. Yeah. And scared for their families at home. So, you know, a really, really tough experience and a sense that it's not been acknowledged. And although we do have some initiatives, you know, the stronger practice hubs, et cetera, not really been fully acknowledged the role that they played through the the kind of crisis and I hope it gets picked up in the inquiry actually I've, I raise, I've raised this and the children we know this is anecdotal we've not got kind of in-depth data on this but we know from our members that children are, are really the, the ones that are born during the pandemic only seeing like you say Mark one or two adults if that in their own home um, are now going into settings and, and starting that journey and um, we're noticing huge differences um, in their in their you know attachment issues etc I know I'll hand over to Molly because I'm sure she's got much more direct experience of that. And I, I think I'll start with the children who um who were in settings during the pandemic mm. and and talking about their journey so I, as part of my role of ARC Star I work with ARC schools uh, which has many many schools in London, Birmingham, Portsmouth and Hastings and we are watching those cohorts going through school. And what's really standing out is that lack of time and support to develop those primaries of learning, that uh, social communication. So we're not just talking about vocabulary, but we're talking about how you can use vocabulary to express yourself well and thoughtfully and kindly, empathy and pro-social behavior, that regulatory skills around their executive functions they still haven't been able to close those gaps. So those cohorts are going through and finding changes in routine. They're finding transitions and they're finding, uh, you know, the expectations put on them to be incredibly difficult. And I don't think we can undervalue how that stress, stress fills your body with cortisol. So when you're stressed, you actually learn less. So they are under stress with delays and learning less, making less progress because of that. So you can you can really see in those cohorts who had such a disjointed beginning of early education experience, how much that that has affected them going through the school. And really with those cohorts, the lessons learned is don't rush through those prime areas of learning because those specific areas of learning come when you are secure in those primes, when you're secure, in your well-being. Mm. You know, you can use the Leuven scales to really track whether a, a child and a grown-up is feeling happy, safe, secure, mm. uh, able to explore. 
And until we've got high levels of well-being, uh, high levels of involvement, uh, and you know that ability to live within a, either you know your family home, your wider setting in the park with friends, nursery, or you know your reception class, sharing your space, sharing your resources, sharing your time, you know yeah. you really aren't able to build on that learning to become a fluent reader. And I think we've been able to use that learning in the nurseries and in the schools to really drive what we know is important in our early education so that by the time our children join school, we know that they've got all of the knowledge and skills that they need to not just be ready, but to be ready to thrive. The beauty of an inspection framework that focuses on curriculum is that actually it gives permission to kind of slow down the progress to whatever it is that you have planned so that, you know, circumstances such as a pandemic, and let's hope we don't go through another one anytime soon, it, it gives, it gives I suppose, the permission to practitioners to say, oh, actually, this is what our curriculum used to look like, but this is what it needs to look like now, or actually it's the same curriculum, but we need to overemphasize these bits of it or we need to slow down our progress through these elements of it as Molly said you know the, the prime areas it's it's trying to reassure people that we do not have a rigid set view of what the curriculum should be other than the educational programs in the EYFS but actually it's an, an interest in why you're doing it that way why you're kind of spending more time on this than that and again increasingly given the, the context that we're working in, that's because we do know children are, you know, they have particular delays more so than in the past. As always, my, my job in terms of in terms of offset is to reassure people that, you know, from, from our perspective, don't feel that we're expecting anything in particular other than, you know, the, the minimum expectations that are set out in in um in the EYFA. Because there is still a long way to go for lots of children. You know, this isn't this isn't something that can be fixed within what a month, a year, two years plus. This is something that's going to take a long time to work through, particularly when the very youngest children have missed out on some important developmental milestones. Because until you have those, it's impossible to, you know, it's like building on sand, isn't it? It's impossible to kind of build something from that point until it's until those elements are secure. We've never had a strategic priority that is that is focused just on one particular age group, but we do now. And obviously our strategy will last us from, from kind of now um, up to 2027. And it's not just about, I suppose, curriculum. We are looking at, at everything that we think can contribute to that best start in life. So, of course, we are interested in how our practitioners are trained in the first place. So I'm working with my further education and skills colleagues about what are the qualifications like in colleges so that we have the, you know, the best possible trainees and the best possible future practitioners and managers and leaders of, of the future. Thanks very much to everyone for uh, joining us for a really interesting podcast. Uh, thank you to Molly, thank you to Helen, our very own Mark and Lee, and see you another time. <laughs>